Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Alarmed by a wave of attacks on American Jews tied to the recent violence between Israel and Hamas, American Jewish Committee and others in May pressed the White House to address a glaring void in the U.S. State Department, the absence of a special envoy to monitor and combat anti-Semitism around the world. This week, President Biden filled that vacancy with one of America's preeminent Jewish historians and Holocaust scholars, Emory University professor Deborah Lipstadt. Professor Lipstadt joined us on People of the Pod shortly after the release of her latest book, Anti-Semitism Here and Now, a series of letters to an imagined college student and imagined colleague, both of whom are perplexed by contemporary expressions of the most ancient hatred. We discussed whether the world is sufficiently aware of this ever-present danger. Professor, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell me, what did inspire you to write this book? When did you start writing it? Was there a catalyst? Yeah, the catalyst was a lot of things that happened, amazingly enough, now it sounds like ancient history, uh, in 2014. The shooting in Brussels, the, the murder in Brussels of visitors to the uh, Jewish Museum there, and a lot of the anti-Semitism that emerged around the war in Gaza. But it was clear to me that it wasn't just related to the war in Gaza, that there had been enough other things happening that to just say, oh, this is all about Gaza was a simplistic view. I wrote an op-ed for the New York Times that got a tremendous amount of attention and discussion. And uh, funnily, I didn't. I thought that would be the end of it. My agent said to me, Deborah, there's a book here. Where's the book proposal? I said, I have wallowed in the sewers of anti-Semitism and Holocaust and all for so much of my life. I really don't want to write about this. But he wouldn't give up, so I wrote the proposal. He presented to a publisher. They were interested, and I had to write the book. But <laughs> I mean a little flip about that, really. But as the time, well, I really started writing the book, I would say, 2015, mid to end 2015. And by that point, it was clear that the book was—to me, it was clear that the book was necessary. Mm-hmm. Well, was the resurgence of anti-Semitism all that clear? Or were you—did you detect in the research of this book some new disguises? I saw new disguises. You know, remember, I've been dealing in this field for so long that my antennae are so sharply honed. And as many people, as would be the case, I think, for many people at the American Jewish Committee, when you deal with this, you sort of, you know it when you hear it, you know it when you see it, you have, you know, what we call it, uh, anti-Semitism dar, you know, (laughs) hate dar. Sadly. Uh, Yes. So um, I began to see things Mm -hmm. and I began to see trends and I began to see an emergence of anti-Semitism on the right in a way that we hadn't seen it in recent decades. And I began to see an institutionalization of anti-Semitism on the left. It had been on the left for quite a while, you know, way back to the old folks listening will remember the new left. And in years since then, uh, it's been adopted by the left. 
uh, oh, not everyone on the left, but certain, clearly not everyone. Um, but I began to see the institutionalization, the Labor Party in Britain, mm-hmm. uh, BDS on campus. Many of its aspects are clearly anti-Semitic mm-hmm. um, and many other things. So I saw this convergence from both sides, which which called to my mind for analysis. Were you seeing BDS on Emory's campus? Emory has been a fairly quiet campus. We had an incident at the end of the academic year of 2019, mm-hmm. um, but it's been it's a fairly quiet campus. You're more likely to see these events um, on large campuses with large graduate school populations, graduate uh, students. Why graduate school? Because graduate students are more attuned politically, though that's not always the case. You see it in other Vassar, Wesleyan, you see it in other places as well. Um, though I do think that in coming months we'll see it on campuses like Emory because I think they've targeted those generally quiet campuses mm-hmm. for, for action, so mm-hmm. to speak. So how are the right, how are the left, how are they disguising their anti-Semitism? I mean, they're, they're yeah. not out there you know, well, on shouting the, tropes. And... On the right, it's what we call white replacement theory or white genocide theory. And it's exactly what you saw in Charlottesville. You know, the Jews will not replace us. Mm-hmm. What did they mean by that? This is a theory widely accepted on the far right. And as you move away from the extremist fringes of the far right, as you get more towards the center, it's accepted in a little less of a sinister way, but it's a a conviction that I think it's correct. And the theory goes, or the claim goes, uh, that there is a plan afoot to attack white Christian culture, to replace white Christian culture with black people, with brown people, with Muslim people. Um, and this is happening all across Europe uh, as as refugees and newcomers arrive. And it's happening in America with the stream or hordes or whatever infestational words that they use uh, from the South. But the white Christian replacement theorist goes on to say, these people certainly lesser than us white Christians, Uh, not as talented, not as smart. They're not capable of engineering this replacement. Mm -hmm. This is being engineered by the Jews, by a whether it's a Soros, Soros, whether it's uh, Rothschild, whether it's the American Jewish Committee, whether it's, uh, you know, Zionist organizations, whatever whatever stand-in they put in there, and that it's... um, it's it's something very insidious and something very devious, and it's 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 being run by Jews. Hmm. So that's what we see on the on the right. On the left, it tends to converge not only but primarily around um, Israel-related things. Not that they're always related to Israel, but Israel becomes the stand-in. Mm-hmm. You know. We don't like Zionists, people will say, even though they don't even know what a Zionist is. Um, But they know, you know, it's not quite cool to be overtly anti-Semitic, but it's okay to attack Israel because you say, oh, this is politics. Uh, Jews, I care about Jews. After Pittsburgh, I was at the memorial service because they love dead Jews. I mean, dead Jews are okay. Um, But, yeah, I'm being facetious, obviously. (laughs) Of course. but uh, so there you see it more in that side. Right. But all you have to do is follow the comments of uh, made by Jeremy Corbyn, you know, leader of the Labor Party, British Labor Party and those around him 
or Ken Livingstone, the former mayor of London, who is, is very much a man of the left, or some people in this country and, you know, our representatives and leaders in this country as mm-hmm. well. So tell me, the United Nations has just released its first human rights report that focuses exclusively on anti-Semitism. Now, this is after a number of UN secretary generals have called for efforts to combat anti-Semitism. Finally, the first report is being released. It seems like every report up until this point has kind of lumped in anti-Semitism with other hates, uh, anti-Muslim hatred, uh, hatred against the LGBTQ population. This one is exclusively focused on anti-Semitism. And I'm just curious what you make of the report's conclusions. I think, first of all, the very existence, the most important thing about the report may be its very existence. Okay. And since this is a American Jewish Committee podcast, I want to give a shout out, a well-deserved shout out to Felice Gare who's been with the committee for decades, um, who has been a human rights activist, even when it wasn't very popular to be a human rights activist. And she is in great measure, you know, her thumbprints are are all over behind the effort to make this happen. Of course, she's been working on this for years, and it took a a (laughs) secretary general who was willing to address it. It took a worsening situation. Sadly, the worsening situation made people realize that this was important. Uh, so I think, and I think it's very important in that regard. It's important in that regard also because it's coming out as part of a human rights effort. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think it is crucial, and this is a two way street, it's crucial that the human rights community recognize that anti-Semitism is part of their agenda, just like uh, fear of Muslims, just like homophobia, just like uh, racism, et cetera, et cetera. It also is important, and that's why what's happened here in, in at the committee in the, the Jacob Blaustein Institute is that we have to recognize that if we're going to ask groups, uh, you know, groups that are concerned and individuals that are concerned about anti-Semitism, they also have to be concerned about human rights. Mm-hmm. You can't fight one ism to the exclusive nature of other isms. But many people in the, who care about anti-Semitism have been burnt in the past. They say they talk about everything, but not about anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. Well, here's here's a, maybe a momentary thing. It may be a small thing compared to the sea of what came before it, but it's a serious effort and it's important effort. Um, I was very pleased to have worked a little bit with uh, Dr. Shahid in in the framing of this, more so uh, my book and my writings he, he has acknowledged uh, were helpful to him, and I think it's, it's a great move in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also very impressed by the fact that it recognizes that efforts such as BDS can be um, anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not to say that every student who becomes part of BDS is is necessarily an anti-Semite. But the founders of the BDS movement, the creators of the BDS movement, clearly call for the destruction of the state of Israel. They want the end of the state of Israel. And to me, that's anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. And I should also add that Dr. Shahid, you, you referred to, is the UN rapporteur who came up with this who And who authored report the report. And authored it. I mean, obviously, it went through many hoops 
nothing comes out of the UN without going through many, many vetting processes, but he was really the driving force. He was the creator. He was given the task. He took it on very, very seriously. Yes. He educated himself, and he deserves great credit for that. Uh, what do you make of the recommendations of the report? It recommends creating a senior-level um, person to address anti-Semitism. It recommends the adoption of the uh, definition of anti-Semitism that uh, comes from the uh, Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. I, by and large, you know, I, without getting nitpicky and into the weeds, by and large, I think they're all great efforts and important efforts. Uh, we don't have to recreate the wheel. Mm-hmm. But what the report is saying, both the existence of the report and the contents of the report, is that it's time to take this seriously. Mm-hmm. You see, for many people, uh, particularly but not only on the progressive left, but for many people, you they look at Jews and they say, what are they complaining about? You know, they're white, even though the, for those on the far right, the guy in Pittsburgh, the murderer in Pittsburgh was yelling, you won't destroy the white race. The guy in Poway was the same kind of thing. You know, Jews will not replace us was, right. was you know, because they don't see Jews as white. But on the left um, and the progressive left, they see Jews as white. Mm-hmm. They can pass. They see Jews as privileged, though we know many Jews are not privileged. And if you control for education, you know, Jews are a highly educated group. They're exactly where they should be, but that doesn't matter. They see Jews, money, Jews, which is, you know, Mm anti-Semitism, one of the elements of anti-Semitism. And they say, well, how could Jews be victims? I mean, this is one of the problems we see on campus. We see the difficulty of many campus administrators, not out of evil, and not out of latent anti-Semitism, but they just don't get it. Mm-hmm. They can't grasp that this group that's coming in, the student coming in from who lives in, I don't know, Westchester, Beverly Hills, uh, whatever it might be. And he's saying, look, you know, I, I had things yelled at me because I was one qu- walking across the campus in a yarmulke or I had things thrown at me or, uh, you know, people taunted me. And they're thinking, what is he complaining about? I want a real problem. And I think this report is an effort to say this is something that needs to be taken seriously. We need to take the issue seriously, not just when there are dead bodies lying mm-hmm. on the ground. And, yes. and I, I hate to speak so graphically. But there are even people now, we're, we're speaking in the wake of the attack in Halle on Yom Kippur, and there are people in Germany saying, well, it just destroyed property. Nobody got killed except for the two people outside who weren't even part of the Jewish community. So, um, but for a bolt on the door, <laughs> right. it would have been a massacre of immense proportions because these people were in one building inside the building with very little egress and place to go, then then people say, oh, well, this is to take seriously. This is hate on the right, and it must be taken seriously. And the other thing I want to say that's very important, some people have already done this. They say, oh, you see, it's more dangerous on the right. We don't have to worry about the left. We don't have to worry about Muslim hatred or Muslim terrorist, Islamist terrorists. Um, but the fact of the matter is it's coming from both sides. And I think this, you know, this dance of which is worse, you know, it becomes like a food fight. And I I, I don't mean to be uh, jocular in any way, but it's the weaponization. It becomes a political weapon so that I have friends who are very committed on the right and they say it's all about the left. And friends on the left who say, you see what's happening? Poway, San Diego, you know, uh, Pittsburgh, uh, Halle. Um, Look next to you. Mm -hmm. That's where you have your most credibility. 
Right. Look to the person next to you. What are they saying right next to you? Don't just look across the political trans. Someone you have a relationship someone with. Someone you have a relationship with, someone with whom you share, you share other political common ground. views. Right, right. exactly. Right. Um, my last question to you, Professor, is how does one school themselves in anti-Semitism um, to avoid making anti-Semitic mistakes that they have heard just in the vernacular over time in the, and in never realized? In the ether realized. sphere or whatever, Right. right. Uh, the assumption all Jews are rich, the assumption all Jews are powerful, the assumption mm-hmm. Jews get what they want, et cetera. Um, you know, by the way, this is not just a problem in relation to anti-Semitism. It's also a problem in relation to racism. It's a problem. I have a, a, I was at a research institute at Emory a few years ago, and I had a colleague from Virginia born and raised, taught in Virginia, born and raised someplace else in, in North Carolina, I think. And she was of Asian origin. And she said, always people say to me, where are you from? And I say, Virginia. They know, where are you really from? Well, I was raised in North Carolina. Where are you really from? Which they would never say to someone who was white and Caucasian. Um, I think, you know, that's one of the reasons I wrote my book, Anti-Semitism Here and Now. How do you recognize it? We all recognize it in Pittsburgh. We all recognize it in Poway. We all recognize it in Halle. We all recognize it in Hypercacher in, in the supermarket in France. But recognize it in the small statements. Mm. Recognize it in, I hate this term, but I'll use it, the microaggressions, you yes. know. <laughs> recognize it that when a newspaper says, well, you know, Jews control the foreign policy. Or recognize it when um, someone makes an anti-Semitic crack. Mm-hmm. Call them out. Mm-hmm. There are many things that can only be done on the UN level, the committee level, the organizational level, like an organization such as this one. But there are things we can do on the individual level. We have to become the unwelcome guests at the dinner party. Mm -hmm. And we have to call people out. And we can't just call them out about racism and accept their anti-Semitism. We can't just call them out on anti-Semitism and accept their racism. Mm -hmm. And also, would you say, be willing to be called out um, when you accidentally repeat something that you've heard? Yes, exactly. Right. Just, you know, with with racism or sexism, don't get defensive, you know, and and, uh, of course, but hopefully people do that. But I think the part of the uh, challenge is for the person doing the calling out to find a way, and this is hard, and I can't give you a simple boilerplate template way to do it, but to find a way of saying it so that the person who said it will hear them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same way when you give criticism in any way. So what do the social worker and psychologist say when you want to criticize? Instead of saying your remark was awful or I felt bad or your remark made me f- – and then the per- – oh, I didn't mean to make you feel bad and then the person will hear it. Um, it's not a battle for scoring points. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's uh, a war, a war against hatred, a war against prejudice, the oldest prejudice in the world. It's got to be an educational uh, effort, educational, and I don't mean just in the classroom or books, but but individual efforts. And and that was one of the reasons, again, that I wrote the book, and I wrote the book, as you mentioned in your introduction, in a way of letters, mm-hmm. because I wanted it to be accessible. And I've been deeply, deeply gratified. Um, I would have liked to be a little less relevant. You know? <laughs> Everybody writes a book, they want their book to come out just at the right time. I would have been happy if the situation had been a little less extreme. Yeah. But I've 
have been very touched by uh, the number of rabbis who used it in their sermons, classroom, teachers, parents giving it to kids, families reading it together. Um, I feel truly humbled by that. Deborah Lipstadt, thank you for helping us fight this battle. Her book is called Anti-Semitism Here and Now, and thank you for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Would you like to be a guest in our recording studio? Here's your chance. Please take some time to fill out our audience survey available now at ajc.org slash podcast survey. It will only take a minute, and even if you don't land a guest spot, you will receive a special gift from AJC. Your feedback will help shape future episodes of People of the Pod. Go to ajc.org slash podcast survey. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash people of the pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop onto Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.